Hello and welcome to Women in Confidence with me, Vanessa Murphy, HR expert, confidence coach and now podcaster. This podcast discusses all things to do with confidence in life and in work. And this is a podcast for women who want to learn what confidence is, how to obtain it and how to maintain it and learn how confidence can help you grow and flourish. Every week, I introduce you to amazing women who have interesting stories to tell about confidence. Through their stories, insights, hints and tips, you realise that a lack of self-belief or low self-esteem is common and also very human. But by listening to them, you'll take away what they have done to show up confidently on the inside as well as on the outside. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Women in Confidence. And this is the new released one on a Tuesday. So hopefully going forward now, people will start to understand that I launch an episode on Tuesday. So my guest this week is known as the Leadership Alchemist. Her actual name is Ros Cardinal, and she is the founder and managing director of a consultancy called Shaping Change. And her consultancy specializes in improving business outcomes and developing individuals, teams and organizations. Now, Ros also has inspirational speaker, award-winning coach and author under her title as well. So she is an incredibly qualified and a great guest to have on Women in Confidence. Roz, good morning and welcome to Women in Confidence. How are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. And thanks for having me on the show. Oh, you're really welcome. I'm so pleased to have you on. Can you tell me where you are in the world right now? I like to do this because I really want to get a sense of where all my guests are and also help my listeners understand where you are. So I'm based in Hobart. Uh, we actually live in Blackman's Bay, which is a suburb just a bit south of Hobart. So Tasmania, Australia. So the island, for those people around the world, it's the island down the bottom of Australia, which usually gets left off the map, which annoys <laughs> Tasmanians enormously. But there you go. <laughs> yes, yeah, so you must be the most southern part of Australia, pretty much. Yes. yes yeah. Amazing. Yes. yes, we do have um, the Antarctic expeditions go from here, the Australian Antarctic expeditions. So it's kind of like the port of call for the big Antarctic ships, which is always quite exciting to see them coming up the harbour. So that just says to the listeners how far south you actually are, because a lot of my listeners are in North America and Canada mm. and the UK. So you're way down yeah, south. 40, 42 degrees south. Wow. wow. Ne- next stop, Macquarie Island, and then stop after that is Antarctica. So, yeah. Yeah, that gives you some sense of probably the weather that you might get at times as well. <laughs> <laughs> right. We should absolutely get on with the podcast. So what I like to do, Roz, is ask my guests this question every time when we get going, and that's to warm up the conversation and lead it nicely into the conversation around um, confidence. So what does having confidence mean to you? For me, confidence is something that um, – you know, you can tell it about somebody. It's in the way that they speak and the way that they walk and the way they present themselves and, you know, obviously the way that they work. But for me, it comes from a space of being really comfortable with who you are and losing that concern about what people are thinking about me and what they're going to say about me and all of those sorts of things. So it is that sort of confidence to jump in and do things, even if you're not 100% sure that you're going to be, you know, able to do it. So it's that, you know, give things a go, stretch yourself. It's that space for me of constantly learning and growing because we're stretching ourselves, we're doing new things, we're trying things out, even when they're a bit scary. So I know it's sort of one of those sort of typical sayings, but, you know, that fear, feel the fear and do it anyway. That for me is confidence. And when was the last time you felt some fear? Um, oh, look, for most people, I think it comes up all the time. I occasionally get it. Um, sometimes when I've got to do a piece of work where maybe I haven't, 
perhaps done exactly that before. I do sometimes get a little bit of a wobble before I start, that sort of thing of, oh, am I going to be able to do this? Or if I get a particularly challenging group of people that I'm dealing with, so sometimes when you're facilitating, you've got a plan for the, the day and then things can get derailed by issues that come up for the team on the on the day and I occasionally get that little bit of where's this going and then I have to trust myself it's that something I say to myself all the time is trust the process because I know I've got a good process I know that if I listen to people and hear their concerns and adapt as we go so adaptability for me is a big part of confidence as well that that knowing that you can flex and change and do what's required in the moment. So would you class yourself as a confident person? These days yes um, but it's a fairly recent thing for me it's something that going back probably 15 years I wasn't and I spent a good part of my life and my working career not being confident at all. Uh, that would probably surprise a lot of people who knew me back then because I used to put on a big bluster face, you know, the sort of <laughs> fake it till you make it thing and, you know, I would have looked really, really confident but underneath not at all. And what was going on then at that time, say 15 years or, or before then, that led you to sort of lack confidence or self-belief or what was showing up? Um, look, for me, it was one of those things where I was a very shy child when I was growing up and I'm very introverted and still am. So I didn't have a lot of friends at school and I sort of went, we changed schools quite a bit when I was young because um, we started off in Australia and then my parents moved to England for a while and then we went and travelled around Europe in a VW combi van. So I was homeschooled in a VW. <laughs> it was the 70s, what can you say? Um <laughs> And then came back to Australia, went back to school here for a couple of years. Uh, my mother took us to Fiji to live for a while. So I sort of moved around a lot and I did a lot of that sort of new kid in a new school, you know, in a different country. And, you know, so that sort of exacerbated my shyness. So I was very shy, withdrawn sort of child and I was terribly nervous, very, very, I remember being terribly self-conscious all the time, really worried that people were looking at me and staring at me and saying terrible things about me behind my back. And that kind of progressed through into my adulthood. And like I said, I developed this veneer of confidence and I was sort of, you know, getting out there doing stuff. But underneath, I was always terrified I was going to fail. So you had the outer confidence or that fake it till you make it and people would have assumed you were confident, but inner confidence was lacking. What Mm. did you do then to take you from that, that lack of inner confidence to where you are now? Because we'll talk about your, um, your business in a moment, but in terms of being a facilitator, an executive coach, how did you, and and a public speaker as well. Mm. So how did you take yourself from low inner confidence Mm. to where you are now? There was a couple of things that happened. One, sort of going back, uh, a lot of it was about putting myself in really scary situations and doing it anyway. So starting to, um, I guess, my kind of training slash public speaking started uh, back when I was, a, I was a kickboxer. So I was a kickboxing instructor for many years. And when I took on the instructor role, having to stand up in front of people and teach and be confident and things like that started. It's one of those things where the more you do it, the better you get at it and the the fear goes away. So for me, it was very much a practice till you get it right. And um, it was kind of like a fairly big event that happened, and it's, it's terribly embarrassing even to this day, but I do tell the story because it's, there's a lot of good learnings in it, where I was taking a class and it was fairly early on. I'd just uh, qualified as an instructor, so I was sort of, you know, out there doing my own thing for the first time. And I was in a gym that, I don't know if you remember the old aerobics class gyms, it had the big mirror on the wall, you know, so everyone could see themselves, but it was behind the instructor. And we had those big, micro, heavy microphone packs because that was back in the day before Bluetooth, so everything was like wired and you had this big pack <laughs> and this big wire that you know, connected to your headset. And it was a heavy pack and, you know, with batteries in it. And I was in the middle of demonstrating a particularly complicated kick and the elastic in my pants broke. 
And so my pants fell down and I'm wearing a G-string and I've got my back to the mirror. So the entire class is like, here's my bum. <laughs> and, and it's awful. But it's one of those things where after that I kind of went, nothing that bad is ever going to happen again. You know, nothing is ever going to be that awful. So it kind of, um, in a lot of ways, even though it was a horrible experience, it's terribly embarrassing, but I just sort of laughed it off and the class was really good about it. They kind of laughed along with me and, you know, I spent the rest of the class holding my pants up with one hand. <laughs> um, but it's it was that sort of thing and nothing worse can happen than that. So that was sort of like the start of me developing a bit more confidence around things like being in front of people and public speaking. But the second big event that really happened in my life was uh, getting diagnosed with cancer back in 2010. So when that happened, it's, and look, I think it happens to most people who have some sort of life-threatening illness because when you're diagnosed with cancer, uh, before you have any information, they just tell you you've got cancer. And the first thing you go to is I'm going to die and that's it and that's the end of everything. But it puts everything into perspective. So you get a, for me anyway, I got this, um, I spent a lot of time in those sort of first couple of months thinking about my regrets, like all the things I wished I'd done and hadn't done because life had been too busy and things got in the way and there was always a really good excuse not to do things, not to step out and do the thing, take the holiday, travel overseas, whatever it was. And when you realise that life is just too short, that perspective really helped me with my confidence because it's that sort of thing of, again, life is too short. We need to get out and have the experiences and do all the things we really want to do and live the life we want to live and do the work that we really feel called to do. So there was sort of like, you know, going back to the kickboxing thing, there was a bit of that that kind of developed my confidence in speaking and standing in front of people and doing that. But the real inner confidence piece came from that huge realisation that life is just too short. Yeah, and I, I've heard this a number of times about people who've been through life-changing situations, and I wonder why why do we always need that sort of kick or that really that moment to just say, okay, I'm going to reassess my life and I'm going to do things differently and do all the things. I don't, I, I don't have an answer for it. I don't know whether you have, but shouldn't we just be able to normalise these? This is what I want to achieve. Um, I don't know. I, I don't really have an answer, and I'm, I'm not not necessarily asking for an answer. But I feel like it's moments in time that are pretty shocking to people where they reassess. And why is that? <laughs> Look, I think it's because, well, for me anyway, I felt like I had lots of time. So I'll do that one day. So things like starting my business and travelling overseas and things like that were all things that we'd get to one day because we've got plenty of time. And that's how it felt. It was always when you think about things, it was always, let's look at starting a business, for example. It's challenging and it's risky. And I had a really good job. I was a senior manager. I was getting paid really well. I had really good benefits and so on. And the kids were at school. So there was always still this when the kids grow up, you know, when we've got less financial pressure, when we've paid the mortgage off, when this, when that, when the other. Because it's, you feel like you've got this, this huge amount of time and you can wait. And I will have that amazing career or start that amazing business or go and do this or do whatever it is that people want to do. But they always think they've got so much time to do it. So I'll just wait until the circumstances are 100% right before I choose to do that, when we've got the mortgage paid off and the kids aren't at school and this and that. And like I, I realised on the spot, it's like, you know, what if there isn't enough time for everything you want to do? And you'll miss out on all of it if you haven't done it. Because that for me, that sort of sitting there going, maybe this is it, maybe I'm going to die in six months, was this sense of all these things I'd wanted to do and really wishing I'd done them by then. And how long did your treatment take from first diagnosis through to the all clear? Uh, it was about six months. So 
Uh, it was really quick, actually. As soon as they discovered the cancer, they sort of had me in hospital within a week. So I think it was only about three or four days before I went in for, into hospital and had a lump removed and then they had to go back and uh, about 10 days later and have another go because they didn't get all of the cancer out and then um, let that sort of heal and then I had radiation treatment. That is amazing, quick, amazingly mm. quick, uh, and very fortunate for you as well mm. that they could they could operate so quickly, and um, and now you're all clear, which is amazing. So going back to your career, so I know initially you you had a very successful HR and organisational development career, and then you made then you left that and started shaping change. So other than the cancer, what sort of brought about the shaping change and being you know your own business owner? There were a couple of things for me. So, I mean, the cancer thing was a big part of it because I'd always wanted to do something, not necessarily my own business, but I wanted to do something with more impact. And that was, I guess, the real catalyst for me was we were doing really great work. I had an interesting job. We were doing good things, but it was limited to, you know, the, uh, that stage about 1,200 people who worked in the organisation. So I always felt that there was, particularly around helping leaders be better leaders. There are so many people in the world that need that help. And I sort of felt like there was always going to be a lot more impact that I could have with that. So starting my a consulting business kind of made sense around that. I did toy with the idea of joining um, somebody else's consulting firm for a while, but then it's, you know, one of the things I know about myself is I have a high need for autonomy. So <laughs> starting my own business seemed to be the, right, the, the sensible move. But for me it was really that kind of, um, you know, I guess knowing that there was a lot more that I could do and starting to feel constrained, I think, probably by the job I was in, um, not frustrated by it because we'd done a lot of good work. We did sort of get to the point where the business was being prepared to be merged with another business at the point that I left. And so the focus had gone completely off leadership and culture and engagement and all the things that I did. And the focus was just on let's get ready for the merger. So the organisation was trimming down and leaning up, I suppose, and I looked at that and the merger was two years away and I looked at that and went, I don't know that I could hang around for two years in a kind of downsizing, you know, type of environment. Mm. So I made the decision to bail at that stage. I'm just going to go back to something you said. You said you've got a, you know you've got a sense um, of autonomy or that's some, one of your needs. Mm. And one of the key elements of confidence and self-belief is really knowing yourself. Mm. So what else do you now know about yourself? Lots, actually. <laughs> It's one of those things. I'm a bit of a, a diagnostics nerd, so I'm accredited in, I think, it's over 25 different psychometric tools now. So I know rather a lot about myself from learning all of those sorts of things. But the key things um, that I work with clients on that I think is really important for people is understanding their values is probably the most important thing. Once you understand what's important to you, you can get clarity around why you do the things that you do and it helps you, gives you a decision-making framework. So whenever I work with somebody who's tossing up between, you know, I've got an offer of a job somewhere else versus staying here, you know, I take them back to values, what's really important to you and do you think you'll be values aligned in that new job versus the job you're in? So values is really important. Understanding your personality and how that works for you is really important. Understanding what you're good at and, you know, having that really good sense of self-awareness. And emotional intelligence is a really key piece as well, being able to understand where you're at, where the other person's at and being able to manage emotions in the moment so that we get good outcomes. I read recently that EQ is probably one of the determining factors of success in leadership. Is that something you would agree with? Absolutely, yes. And look, I've worked with some incredibly intelligent leaders who are, just don't have EQ at all and they struggle. Um, and look, I'll give you an example of how this actually works. I had a, 
was working with an executive team once it's a while ago now and the CEO was um you know he wasn't great with his EQ and something happened in that he, he made an announcement in the organization that uh, his executive team most of them disagreed with and half of them actually resigned that day because of the announcement he'd made and when I was in speaking to him he didn't understand why he's like I don't understand what happened you know, we were just having an executive meeting and the next minute everybody had resigned. And when I spoke to one of the team, they, she said to me, how could he not have noticed? Like I looked around the room when he'd made the announcement and everyone's jaws were on the table and, you know, people were shocked, horrified. You could see this distress in the room. How could he not see that? And But he literally didn't see it. And so, for he, you know, for somebody with low EQ, navigating that the world is actually uh, can be quite complicated because of the fact that they don't see a lot of the things that, people would normally pick up. They can't look at somebody and say, that person looks a bit upset, maybe I should say something to them. You know, and in leadership, that connection, people want to follow people that they feel connected with and people they feel inspired by. Unless you've got that ability to uh, navigate emotions in the moment, you can't actually do that particularly well. And, you know, it's one of those sort of things that everybody says, but it's true that you can teach skill. So, you know, higher for values, higher for emotional intelligence, higher for culture fit, and then you can teach the skill. Well, I was going to ask you do, you, do you think emotional intelligence is static or is it something you can develop? Oh, you can absolutely develop it. Yeah. It's a, actually, I had somebody in one of my programs who, um, one of my EI programs who turned up early while I was setting up the room. And he said to me, I came in early because I wanted to have a chat to you. He said, I did the emotional intelligence test and I'm really keen to find out how I went because I'm on the autism spectrum. And you know, he, when I handed out the results, he'd actually scored really, really well. And he said to me afterwards, he said, I've, once I was diagnosed, diagnosed at age 14, he said, I've been tr- practicing people stuff all that time because I knew I wasn't good at it. So I've really spent a lot of time practicing, you know, recognizing emotion, for example. But it's actually relatively easy for him because it was about, it's about pattern recognition because faces make certain patterns and those patterns mean certain things. And you know, the expression of emotion is universal. No matter where you are in the world, faces do the same thing when we're happy everybody smiles. So once you know that a smile means people are happy, that's just pattern recognition from there on. So you can absolutely learn it. And I mean, I've worked with people who've um, changed their EQ quite dramatically over time because it's just paying attention. Um, Emotional management is is strategic. So it's about, I see the emotion, I feel the emotion, I know what's going on for me, I know what's going on for the people around me. And then I make some decisions about what I do with that. And I've never asked this or even really thought about it until now talking to you, but is EQ more gendered is it a more female trait or is that just me stereotyping it look it's yes and no so the basics of it are universal women tend to practice it more because that's something that is you know it's more I guess required or expected of women men can certainly learn to be very emotionally intelligent I've met a lot of very emotionally intelligent men in my time so they can learn to do it but women you know it's that whole caregiver thing you know we're much more attuned to other people's emotional states and in a lot of ways, it's for people, it's a survival mechanism because you go back to cavemen days and our ability to survive was dependent upon our ability to connect with other people because being in a tribe, there's safety in numbers. And, for example, if we're being attacked by another tribe, it uh, is useful to us to be connected to the strongest people in our tribe because they'll protect us. So it's that sense of being able to read what's going on for other people and connect and engage with that is a survival trait. So, you know, most humans are relatively good at it. It's one of those things where um, it's like IQ when we look at uh, the mesquite test, which is one I use. 
the average is 100 and the standard deviation is plus or minus 15. So about 60, um, 60% of the population fall between 85 and 115 on the scale, which means that, you know, most people are actually relatively good at it, but you do have the occasional people who are outstanding and they have a different map of the world. And how I usually describe it to them is it's a bit like having Google Maps on your phone and there are people who will open it up and just see the, the map view. And there are people who overlay the 3D version of it and you can, they can see the buildings from above. And then there's the Google Street View where you're standing in the road and looking around in the 360 and actually seeing everything around you. And it's kind of like that. You know, most people have got the map, but other people have got those, you know, deeper nuances of it. And then just going back to EQ and the fact it can be learned or developed, for people who are listening and either don't know about EQ or are curious, what would you sort of advise them to do? The first, there's, there's really four key skills involved. And the first one is being able to recognise emotion, which is can I recognise it in myself and also recognise it in you? And the best way to develop that, and it's an activity I give to clients all the time, is find a movie you haven't seen before, something that's got quite a lot of drama in it, and get to a point where you can tell that two characters are about to interact and they're about to have an emotional conversation and then turn the sound off. And just watch the body language, watch the faces and see if you can figure out what's going on. And then when the scene's finished, just rewind it and watch it again with the sound, see how you go, because that's a really safe way to practice because, it's, you know, it doesn't matter if you get it right or wrong. Because people can, once you get used to it and you get used to what patterns of the faces look like, it's quite easy to pick up. So there's that. There's understanding how emotions work and that sort of sense of knowing that emotions escalate over time and they de-escalate and, you know, how those things work. And you can have blends of emotions about something all at once and they can be quite contradictory emotions. Um, there's how to use emotions. And this is something that almost everyone's done. When you've sat down to do something, you've gone, God, I'm not in the mood for this. And that's mood task matching, which is knowing but then doing something with that rather than just plowing ahead anyway, going, I've got choices. I can leave the activity for another time. I can, you know, maybe put it off or I could change my emotional state right now so that I am in the right mood for it. And I think that sense of control over your emotions is really mm. important and, and certainly just sort of taking it back to confidence or lack of confidence, knowing that you can control your emotions and it's probably the one thing you can actually control because you can't always call the, control the external environment is so important and particularly going back to your role in shaping change around leadership and developing leadership and being better leaders that controlling of the emotions it's managing emotions more than controlling so controlling implies that we can we stop the emotion and it's not like that it's not about flatlining emotion it's feeling the emotion and then going what do I want to do with this so I'm feeling really, just say, for example, something happens and I start to feel really angry. It's not about me stopping being angry. It's me saying, isn't it interesting that I'm feeling angry? What's this telling me about the situation? What does this mean? And what am I going to choose to do as a result of that? And that's the choice point is the management point where, you know, how people say, I got really angry and I couldn't help it. You actually can help it. You can control control the response to it. So you go, I'm feeling really angry. That's super interesting. What am I going to do with this? And then you've got the choice about how you respond to it. Really brought that that you brought that up because I had a moment the other day and I talked about it on a somebody else's podcast about this moment of not road rage because that makes it sound like I got out of the car and went you know ballistic <laughs> but I lost I lost my shit a little bit with somebody yeah. pulling out in front of me and I really had to say to myself look Vanessa where the heck has this come from yeah. and you need to you know so I was really aware of it and, right. and and it rose and then once I'd sort of acknowledged it was there I was able to then do something about it and my choice mm. was right, okay, I'm going to acknowledge that okay. it's there, but I'm going to mm. let it go because, yeah. you know, there wasn't really a dangerous situation. But, you know, those are just that's just one tiny example of where I've been able to mm. acknowledge my emotions. Perfect. 
yeah, you acknowledge them, you know, because when someone cuts you off in traffic and you're running late for work, it's sometimes really justified to get annoyed with that because it, it goes back to values, which is maybe, um, you know, for me, one of my values is fairness. So when I <clears throat> tend to get a bit, not road ragey, but it annoys me, is if we're, you know, you're in a big line of traffic and somebody gets onto the shoulder and zooms along and then joins at the beginning right in front of the line. And I hate that because, but it gets back to fairness because it's not fair. Everyone else is sitting in a queue and this person's tearing up to the front to get the traffic light. And what I've had to, you know, learn to do with that is go, just because it doesn't feel fair to me doesn't mean it means anything to the other person. Maybe they're, you know, on the way to hospital with a vomiting child in the back. I don't know this. Maybe they've been called, you know, maybe they're a shift worker and works, I don't know, maybe an ambulance worker who's just been called in for an emergency. I don't know their story. But what I'm doing is overlaying my story over what's happening. And my story is that it's not fair to cut a queue. <laughs> well, let's talk about values. And you've already said one of yours is fairness. What are your other ones? So autonomy is right up there. Making a difference for me is really important. Um, fairness, respect and learning. And how did you come to those? It's, did they come to you? <laughs> no, I've got a really lovely process that I use with clients and I've done it. I do it myself every sort of five years or so just to sort of check in, but it's a it's a set of values cards and there's probably about 200 cards, but, you know, there's obviously a lot more values than that. But what we do is you sort the cards out and the first thing you do is you discard all the ones that don't mean anything to you, so you chuck them aside, and then you're generally left with, I've had people who've been left with any, you know, probably anywhere from 100 to 20 and then we go through and you put them into piles of things that mean something similar. So for me, you know, learning, I've got, you know, things like wisdom, education, learning all sit in that same pile. And then when you've got piles of things that mean the same things to you, most people end up with about five to eight piles. And then it's choosing the word. And it doesn't have to be a word off the cards. If there's another word that resonates more for you that you know, you can keep that word instead. And then out of your, you know, set of five to eight that you end up with, we then put them in hierarchical order. So if you had to choose between, for example, respect and wisdom, which one would you choose? And then you end up with a hierarchical order. So yeah. that's that's the process for, for basically deciding values. That's a tough one, respect or wisdom. I was just thinking <laughs> that is really tough. That would really yeah. stretch me, mm -hmm. I think. Some people can't choose and then they'll, they'll end up with two number ones and that's okay because what it's about is just getting people to, to narrow it down because, you know, you can have situations where people's values can actually be in conflict with each other. So if, for example, you have the value of being true to self, which means, you know, doing what you want to do and ultimately doing what's right for you, and you've also got another value around emotional security, you can have conflicts in your personal life, for example, where you're having an argument with a partner and part of you wants to be true to self and say what you think and the other part is I need emotional security so I don't want to upset this relationship. So then knowing which of those two values is most important to you will help you decide how to respond in that situation. I think that's really interesting to talk about because I know what it's like to feel in conflict with my values and, and speaking up is a really good example. So, but I think how do I, how would, I mean, I'm using this on myself, but anybody listening, how would you start unpicking some of that to say, I am in such conflict here mm -hmm. with my values and it, it will actually affect, I suppose, my confidence in some ways because I'm like, well, I'm not this and I'm this mm -hmm. and I'm flip-flopping. How would you start to unpack some of that? And that's where, like I said, the values hierarchy is important, like knowing that, it, you know, when somebody's got some sort of conflict, one of the first things I ask them is, you know, what's really important to you in this? Let's go back to your values. Mm -hmm. And when you, you've got values conflict there, whether it's conflict between two of your own values or conflict between your values and someone else's values, it's deeply disturbing. And we find that if people are in organisations where there's values conflict, it actually makes them physically sick over time. People get stressed, they get ill, they get run down, they get, you know, all the sort of stress-related illnesses come up. 
um, because it's so very difficult for humans to be in a situation where their values are out of alignment. Mm. And I think because we, we, I mean, I've worked in HR now for years and I know Mm. you work in that space or certainly worked more deeply in that space before you set up your business. And I see that a lot around this stress-related illnesses and I'd never thought about it as values and there's a conflict Mm. with their values but yet they may be one of their values is I need security yeah the other one is I don't need whatever it is that's in that culture and that can lead to all sorts of stress related Mm. illnesses and sometimes and I have seen this when people then leave that organization they are like a changed person Mm. and genuinely happy and I say this because I've made people redundant in the past and they actually thank me Yes. for it because they realize their own values are so out of line with the company values and you must have seen that mm. working in HR yeah. yeah and you do find that that people um you know people cling to the job because you know maybe one of their values is security and that's that sense of, even though I'm not happy here and you know I don't enjoy the work and I'm in clash you know my, I clash with my, my manager all the time the need for security is so strong I stay and sometimes when the decisions made for them through a redundancy process, for example, you do get that relief. Like, you know, when we were, we were um, basically preparing for the merger of the company I was working for, people were being made redundant. And I remember seeing, like, you know how you bump into people in the street? You're doing Hobart anyway. It's a small town. <laughs> you bump into people in the street all the time. And seeing people, you know, two, three weeks later or months later and having people say to me, that's the best decision that ever happened for me. Even though I didn't want it, I was, you know, I really wanted to stay because I need security, I've got a better job or I'm doing whatever. But people generally said that's the best thing that happened for me. Yeah, maybe it's going back to what you were saying about or we were talking about just one of those life-changing moments is a really good opportunity to assess and say, well, actually, what do I want to achieve? Mm. You know, being made redundant or dismissed or whatever it is, is a is a good opportunity. It's one of those moments in time to say, what do I want to do next? Mm. And it's an opportunity to say, actually, I want to go in a different direction. Mm. So I think, I mean, I don't know where I'm going with it, but it's I've been made redundant twice, so I know what it's like. Mm. But actually, it is a great moment to just think about your values to some extent. Mm. Yeah, and decide what you want to do next. And, you know, I often work through that with people who are leaving jobs for various reasons and that, you know, well, what you could do anything next. What would you like to do? You know, what lights you up? What kind of work do you love? You know, and... It's often quite, redundancies in particular are quite freeing for a lot of people because you've generally got a packet of money. So for most people, there's not the, uh, you know, I've got to start work tomorrow because I've got to be able to put food on the table. It's I've got a buffer of, you know, a couple of weeks or a couple of months or even up to six months to think about what I want to do next. And, you know, obviously if you land a job in the meantime, that's fantastic because your redundancy then goes to pay the house off or whatever. But it's that sort of sense of people often get that, I've actually got some freedom to think. Like, um, you know, there's a CEO that I've, she's not a CEO anymore, she uh, left that organisation, but she took a year off and she said, I just did some gardening, you know, potted about, did the gardening, just thought about what I wanted to do next and she's a consultant now as well. But that, um, what you were saying about freedom to think is so important because I don't think people give themselves enough freedom and time and Mm. changing from, using you as an example, from somebody who was, externally probably very confident internally not so to where you are now that's you've had to think that through that hasn't just I imagine happened just naturally you've had to think about it and give your space yourself space to I suppose assess understand yourself set your values Mm. so people who are listening what would you say to them around this freedom to think and they think oh I'm so busy I can't do this yeah and look that's the reality of the world we're just so busy 
so, so busy. And one of the things that, you know, is really important for leaders and well, for anybody, but leaders in particular, is to actually take time out to do some thinking. And I have clients who, you know, pay for coaching basically because they, well, actually, I'll tell you this story just because it's funny. Um, I had a, a client in Melbourne, a CEO, and I was flying over there every couple of months and spending some time with him and his executive team. And he used to just sit me in his office and he'd just talk furiously and he'd whiteboard and he'd talk about problems and he'd and I hardly said anything to him. He just used to whiteboard and talk. And I said to him, you know, once I said to him, um, I'm just a bit curious about why you're paying me to be here because you're not actually, you know, I'm not really doing anything other than saying how you're going and then you just start and tell me and we spend the whole hour with you telling me what's going on. And he said, it's the only time I have to just think. And for him, he, he thinks out loud. So what he was thinking was coming out of his mouth. And um, he said, if I don't actually pay you to come and do this with me, I'll put thinking time in my diary, but then it gets overtaken by meetings because it's not seen as a priority. But because I'm paying you and I know you're showing up and you know, you're expecting me to be here, it forces me to actually do that. And he said it was the most valuable part of his his month or every second month was sitting down and actually being able to just talk about what was going on for him. And, you look, we restructured his executive team at one point during one of those conversations. But um, so it's it's making time, but it is, unless you've actually got a commitment to it, and for him it was paying me to be there. Unless there's a commitment to it, it gets overridden by all the other busy stuff. Mm, that's a really good story, actually. So thanks for sharing that. I'm just going to go back to something you said, and we're going to talk about shaping change. You said, find something that lights you up. Mm-hmm. And I love that saying, because it's there are so many things that light me up. And I think absolutely, this is going to get the best out of me. But shaping change, it, does that light you up? It does. And look, it's, it's not all of it, obviously, because I mean, everyone has to do the filing and you know, yeah, the, <laughs> yeah, the bad statement, things like that. You know? <laughs> Those bits don't light me up. Um, but it does. I was actually talking to somebody about this yesterday because she came to see me and she's in a situation where she's had a huge promotion. So she said to me, it's almost like I've achieved this freedom where I don't have to worry about, you know, what happens if the car breaks down, for example. But she said, I suddenly don't know what I'm doing or where, why I'm here. She said, it's like I've lost my purpose. And we had this really good conversation about it. But for me, you know, what I said to her, as I said, the things when I think about some of the work that I do, I'd do it if I wasn't getting paid for it. You know, I could just keep it, it energises me. It's that sense of coming to to do this particular piece of work. And it, just, it does, it lights me up. I love it. I look forward to it. I'm not sitting there going, oh, God, you know, today's Thursday, I've got to go and do the thing. It's like, yeah, you know, it's Thursday. I get to wake up and go and do this really fun work. And we talked about that for a bit, just about, and I said to her, look, it's quite okay if you haven't, if you feel like you've lost your sense of purpose, just take some time. You don't have to rediscover your purpose tomorrow. Be, You know, just take some time to enjoy where you're at and you'll figure it out. But it's finding something that's really um, something that you love, something that, you know, if people pay you to do it, that's even better because otherwise it's just a hobby. Yeah, most of the work that I do, I absolutely love. That's good to hear. And mm. with the shape, with shaping change, and we should talk a bit more and get people to understand your business. So on your website, you talk about developing individuals, teams and organisations. And there's some really big topics in there. But I want to, and I know your clients are not just females mm. or women. I know you you do both men and women. But I want to understand through your work and your observations, what are the characteristics of a confident leader? It's, you can always... You can always tell because, and now now I know this, I didn't back then. Actually, going back to my own experience, a lot of the time when I was bluffing it, you can actually tell the difference when you know the difference. Uh, somebody who's genuinely confident is they've got this sort of relaxed presence about them where the confidence shines through but it's coming from a space where there's 
difficult to describe it. I'd probably say yes, that relaxed uh, confidence about it. Where somebody who's you know bluffing the confidence is this sort of sense of anxiety or sense of urgency that you can pick up if you study them. It's like it's quite pushy. It's almost like this, you know, in your face type of confidence. And I, I can say this because that's where I was at before I sort of discovered what real confidence looked like for me is that I was achieving lots. I was pushing myself really hard. I was pushing my team. I was getting stuff done. You know, it was getting stuff done because my ego was attached to my ability to deliver on task. You know, I got my sense of self-worth from being really good at what I did. But it was kind of like this fake thing because underneath it was this sense of I'm going to fail all the time and being terrified of failing and pushing myself harder to prove something to somebody. Whereas when you've got true confidence, you lose that ego attachment to it. So you're not proving anything to anybody. You're getting things done just because you enjoy doing it or you love the work that you do. And you see people, you you can really tell the difference between real confidence and fake confidence when something goes wrong because somebody who's in that real solid sense of self-esteem when something goes wrong, it's, well, that was interesting. What have we learned from it? Did we fix it? Is the client okay? Is everyone, you know, have we sorted the problem? And let's figure out how we fix this so it doesn't happen again. Whereas somebody who's got that sort of false bravado type of confidence, they start blaming everybody. So we jump to blaming people, even blaming themselves, but this sort of sense of it all becomes about the problem, not about the solution, and, you know, it's that sort of let's beat everybody up about it. Whereas somebody who's really confident goes, well, I didn't expect that to happen, but that was interesting. <laughs> so it's more the growth mindset. Which seems to be very popular and even my kids get taught it now, which is amazing. Um, So it's about rather than going, say, going on the sort of hunt for a scapegoat, it's actually using that opportunity to grow and to learn. And it's that sort of sense of mistakes are just learning opportunities. Whereas when your confidence is that veneer type of confidence, anything going wrong feels like a you know, the end of the world because it's it's basically showing that I'm not as competent as people think I am or not as confident as or confident and competent as how I portray. And so it becomes a direct, um, almost like an attack on the ego. And so based on your experience, your observations, who do you think is the most confident person that you've met? And you don't necessarily need to mm. say names, but I suppose why did you why do you think they are confident? I've met I reckon in all of my coaching career, I think I've probably met about maybe a dozen people who were genuinely confident like that, who genuinely solid self-esteem, completely self-confident in who they were. But the key tell, like I said, is the lack of ego because they're not proving anything to anybody. They're just being themselves. Mm. And so there's this lightness about it. There's this joy because it's not that sort of push to show how confident I am. It just happens. And um it's a really lovely thing to be around and they're quite amazing people to to spend time with because they're very expansive. It's like they've got lots of interesting experiences and they do lots of cool things because fear's not holding them back. So they'll go away and have amazing adventures or they'll, you know, quit a job and take another one just because it looks more interesting. You know, they don't sort of have this fear of, and I remember actually when I started my business, I had a close friend who's, who's like that. And I remember saying to her when I was making the decision about leaving my my corporate job, saying to her, you know, what if I fail? What if I start the business and I completely screw it up? And she said, you're just going to get another job, wouldn't you? <laughs> and in her head, it was that simple. But to me, it wasn't because all the ego attachment to what if I fail? You know, failing was a terrible thing. She's like, well, it just means it didn't work out for you. Just go get another job. And she literally didn't understand what the big deal was. <laughs> and do you think those people you've met then that you saw actually that those dozen who have just mm-hmm. exuded confidence or just have a natural mm-hmm. confidence, do you think they've had to work at it or is it that's who they are most of them have 
Most of them have had, you know, when I've spent time with them talking to them, most of them have had to work at it. Some people are naturally like that and it comes from the way that they were, were brought up as children because if somebody has been brought up to feel always valued and always loved no matter what, so you're valued and loved for who you are, not because of what you do or how good a child you are or, you know, your school grades or anything like that, it does grow that sort of sense of natural, um, you know, self-actualisation in a child. Whereas the majority of people have not had that, you know, because parents don't mean to mess people up, but, you know, at the end of the day, kids don't come with a handbook. So, you know, we send messages to our children, whether that's about being good at school or being such a good kid or so helpful or so tidy or whatever, all of those messages that we send to kids gives them the impression that that's what they're valued for. And then, the you know, that sort of sense of self-esteem is not real. It's kind of like a house of cards. And some of the confident people that I've met have learnt it themselves, like they've developed that over time. Um, I've worked with a CEO who's been a coaching client of mine for about, well, since before I started my business, actually. And she has moved from that sort of really pushy, almost like aggressive sense of confidence into being just naturally very confident. But she's done that through the work of unpacking why she felt the way that she felt and unpacking the ego and unpacking that connection to, you know, showing how competent she was. And she said it kicks in from time to time, like every now and then she'll call me and she'll say, I fell off the wagon, can we have a coffee? And we do, we talk about it. But, you know, for her, it's developed through a lot of hard work. Yeah, and I think that's a really important point is that these changes in yourself, they are hard work and they take Mm. time and you can't just journal it one day and expect to be that Mm. person the next day. It does take time. And, you you know, you're talking about a CEO who has been with you for a very long time and is still going through that Mm. learning and growth and the iterations of herself. So I think that's really important to state. So what's your one piece of advice to people who are listening and they say, I want some self-belief. I want to build my confidence. What would you advise them to do? It's like any muscle. You've got to flex it and you've got to practice it in order to build it. And I know it's it's not work-related, but an example that I've got in my own life was uh, growing up I was terrified of roller coasters because I went on a roller coaster when I was a little kid and sort of, you know, had your neck jerks going around the corner and I got, you know, that sort of thing, you can't move your head. And I just had this strong memory of roller coasters being associated with hurting my neck. And so I didn't go on roller coasters for years and years and was always quite scared of them. And then we went, my husband and I went to Disneyland in 2011, I think it was. So just after my cancer died, I just started finished treatment. And I said to him, I'm going to get over this fear of roller coasters. It's stupid. So we went to Disneyland and we went to the little kiddie roller coaster that kind of is just like going over gentle speed bumps. And I'm lined up for this little kiddie roller coaster and there's all these like five-year-olds around me. And when I got to the front of the queue, the guy putting everyone in the, the chairs was assumed that I was with the children because he's like, which ones of these are yours? And I'm like, uh, none of them. I'm just here by myself. And he's like, okay. <laughs> and I did the little kitty roller coaster and I didn't die, you know. And then it's like, okay, I didn't die. I didn't hurt my neck. So I went to the next one, the one for eight year olds. And I tried out that one. And I kind of got to the point where I was doing, you know, adult size roller coasters, not the ones that flip you upside down, but didn't quite get there. But it was that facing what scares you and but in little steps, not enough to. Because if I'd gone on a roll, if I'd gone on the big one straight away, the one that turns you upside down, it would have probably hurt my neck and completely reinforced all of my fears, mm-hmm. which is roller coasters are terrifying and they hurt you. So it's getting over the fear by taking those sort of baby steps, like gradually stretching your comfort zone bigger and bigger over time is probably the best advice that I can give people. So whatever it is that you're, makes you feel underconfident, go and do that. But don't, if you're scared of public speaking, don't stand on the stage in front of, front of 20,000 people on your first go, you know. <laughs> Stand up and talk at dinner in front of your friends or join Toastmasters or something like that and just get over it bit by bit. And what do you still want to get over, I suppose? Maybe that's not a nice way to say it, but 
what's what do you still fear and you think I quite like to work on that I'm still working on myself because I do have um I have a tendency to be hypercritical when things aren't going well for me and I can tell when I'm doing it because I start getting that internal dialogue, of, you know, where I start getting really critical of other people or the things that they're doing. And that's something I really don't like about myself and it's something I'm continuing to work on. And that comes from, a, you know, it's a protective mechanism as most of these things are. When things are not going well for me, my feeling critical of other people is my defence mechanism, which is I might be feeling really incompetent right now, but at least I'm not as bad as that person over there. <laughs> so that's something that I'm working on and will probably always have to work on. It's definitely a lot better than it used to be because I can pull it up now when I, I notice it before it becomes a big deal. Mm. So that's something that I'm going to continue to work on and look, maybe for my whole life. I'd like to hope that eventually I'll get over it, but, you know, you never know. Well, thank you for your honesty there. And mm. how can people find you? They can get in touch with us through my website, so shapingchange.com.au or my email is ros, R-O-S, at shapingchange.com.au. Um, so, yeah, so through the website, it's the easiest way to get hold of me or by email. And I'll put all those details in the notes to the, the episode so people can absolutely reach out to you and find you. Do you do any Instagram, social media? Blah, blah, blah? I'm not on, I'm on Instagram, but only for personal reasons. So you get photos of my cat and dog and sunsets <laughs> and things like that. But um, I'm on Twitter, I'm on LinkedIn and I'm on Facebook as well. So Ros Cardinal on Facebook, Shape and Change also has a Facebook page, um, you know, at Cardinal Ros on Twitter and it's pretty easy to find on LinkedIn, Ros Cardinal. All right, great. And I will put all those details again into the notes. So anybody who wants to um, get in contact with Roz can do so using the links in the notes. Well, Roz, thank you very much for being on the show and for sharing all your insights and all your knowledge and expertise and your own, your own journey through your sort of cancer, through to where you are now um, leading, founding and being the CEO of uh, Shaping Change as well. Thank so you. thank you very much. Absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me on the show. Thank you so much for listening to Women in Confidence and I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, then please like it, share it, comment on it, and if you want to, sponsor it. If you'd like to take part in my podcast or know somebody who would make a perfect guest, then please email me on contact at vanessa-murphy.com. That's contact at vanessa-murphy.com. Until next time.